Welcome to Black Mountain Radio. I'm Sara Ortiz, a curator, a literary dynamo, a nomadic salvi. I'm Erica Vital Lazar, a writer, curator, and in a shout out to Credence Clearwater Revival and TLC, I'd like to say that I'm both the Midnight and the Red Light special. And in a shout out to both Rihanna and Johnny Cash, I've been everywhere, man. I love how in this final episode of season two of Black Mountain Radio, how we've traveled there and back again. You are the quintessential flaneur in a beautiful way. I feel like I'm one of the very lucky souls that gets to be in your classroom. I'm constantly learning from you. You're always sharing some amazing connection between what we've just heard or what we're about to listen to, which I really appreciate and love. That's what this episode is all about. I'm just going to like rain compliments onto Erica Vitalazar, as everyone should. (laughs) And they will be returned. I think we've been in beautiful company with one another and with all of these voices, these creators, these thinkers, Mm. these world travelers. Even when I think about the arc of the season, we start off with Amanda Fortini's strip mall piece, which starts in Vegas. And today's episode will end with Sonny Brown's piece, Leaving Las Vegas. Mm. And for me, there feels like there's a journey even in that. And so I'm excited that If you're listening, you've made it to episode six of season two. Beautiful. I love that connection that you've made between the beginning and the end. It makes me think about the ways in which this pandemic season has given so many of us a lot of time to think about where we began and where we're journeying to and how we always hope to arrive back home. And in that musing about that journey, I'm also thinking about the meaning of home. Whether we can do more to make home more than a place of arrival, but also a feeling that is nurturing, a feeling that we are safe and that we are secure. Well, for our first story, BMI fellow Natasha Tarpley considers what makes a community and moreover, what makes us feel safe within community. Sort of what you're talking about right now. When we approached Natasha about contributing to the season of Black Mountain Radio, she was already in the midst of research for an essay about the history of Black gun ownership in the U.S., And her question was, is, should Black communities arm themselves for safety? It's absolutely a complex question, and you probably won't be surprised to learn that she didn't find a simple answer. But I'm curious to know, Erica, what do you think about that question? Well, it's a complicated one. I have memories of my grandfather on his acres of land in Georgia in his home resting with a shotgun near his bed. It was necessary. It was one of my first understandings 
of how the idea and the reality of the gun, which is a very American one, just as American as the American dream itself, Mm -hmm. how intimately we can include that in our day-to-day lives. But for me, though I admired my grandfather deeply, and though I understood his vigilance, I have a difficult relationship with the idea of gun ownership for myself personally. I often think about Audre Lorde's complex, and though we simplify it every time we quote from it or paraphrase it, but the idea of using the master's tools to take down the master's house. In many ways, I think about the gun as the master's tool. Mm -hmm. I do think about the choice not to pick up the master's tools. When we pick up that weaponry and we protect ourselves with this weaponry, which might be necessary, and I understand the philosophy there, I also feel as though that weaponry belongs to a larger system. And I ask myself, are we perpetuating those systems Mm. when we pick up that weaponry? Mm. I also know that laws like stand your ground are not meant for us. They do not protect us in the same way. Mm -hmm. So this is also um, part of the complexity of that argument that I have with myself about owning a gun. Thank you for answering that question. I think you've also demonstrated why it's such a complex question, why it's so hard. And it's in part why Natasha grapples with it herself. In this segment, Natasha shares some of what she's learned about the Black tradition of taking up arms and considers whether having a gun in her own home would make her feel more or less safe. Here's Natasha. Should we get a gun? This is a question my husband asked me in the summer of 2020 as we sat glued to the television watching images of hundreds of thousands of people around the country and the world marching in protest of the horrific racist killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery. Chicago, the city where we live, was on lockdown. Outside, we could hear helicopters circling over our predominantly black Southside neighborhood as reports of violence and looting in our community continued to rise. It felt like the world was tilting on its axis, like we were in the midst of a war zone. And while we supported the protests, my husband and I were both growing more concerned about what casualties the combination of pent-up Black anger and increased police presence in a community already maligned and typecast as the dangerous part of the city pre-George Floyd would bring. Growing up, my dad, a Chicago police officer, kept a gun in our house. Even as a kid, I recognized the power of that object to irreversibly alter the course of a life. And though I was drawn to and immensely curious about that power, it did not make me feel safe. In fact, it made me more fearful of the damage that a gun could do inside of our house than comforted by any potential protection it might offer from outside attackers. 
So even considering bringing a gun into my home now or carrying one on my person inspired a deep gut-level sense of ambivalence and fear. That said, I was not surprised that my husband would consider purchasing a firearm, especially at this time. In our current climate, as civil and voting rights are being chipped away, as predominantly Black communities disproportionately impacted by the coronavirus pandemic manifest the impact of decades of disinvestment and neglect, as the influence of white nationalism expands and the number of hate crimes and acts of violence against Black people rises, as police brutality persists, it is understandable that gun ownership among Black people, particularly Black women, grappling with a heightened sense of danger and precariousness is on the rise, increasing from 24% of Black households with a gun owner in 2017 to 37% in 2021, according to statistics from a 2021 Pew Research Center survey. I still have a lot of ambivalence about the role of guns in making Black people and communities safer. But for my neighbor Bernadette, a 60-something-year-old Black woman who is an avid gun collector and a passionate proponent of armed self-defense, carrying a gun is a source of power. It changes the way you walk in the world, she says. I have Browning, Stevens, New Haven, all of those are rifles. And, uh, and then I have uh, a Beretta and I have a Ruger. Bernadette, who calls her guns friends, lists some of the weapons in her collection. <laughs> and I have another, you know what? I, I wasn't going to do this. I don't, know, I don't know if I want you to say all this about me. But yeah, these are some of the weapons that I have. Bernadette was born in Chicago, but spent a large part of her life in East St. Louis, Illinois. It was there that she first discovered a love of guns. I worked in East St. Louis, and I worked at the East St. Louis Police Department, where I taught cadets. And part of the cadet program was the gun training, and we also did that for what was called modern security. And so initially what happened as a teacher and then department chairman, I thought, man, why would we pay modern security? We could hire our own people, teach the course, make that money. We could set it up where you could come one week, get all this stuff, get the gun training. We got the armory, partner with them. And then I got to thinking, I'm writing all this stuff up. I know the answers because I wrote the question. So I'll just get a security license, and that's what I did. I enjoy shooting, and I got so good at it. I used to go to the uh, National Guard Armory, and anybody that had a gun I hadn't shot, I'd say, oh, let me shoot your gun. But it was just amazing to me the sense of calm you get from shooting a gun well and knowing how to handle it. And 
for lack of a better way of stating it, it almost makes you come. <laughs> Despite Bernadette's love of shooting, guns also play a primary role in making her feel safe. We live in a historic neighborhood on the far south side of Chicago. Though the surrounding areas are predominantly African-American, our immediate neighborhood is pretty racially mixed, with just about an even distribution of Black, White, and Latinx residents. Even so, racial tension and disparities definitely exist here. These manifest in both indirect ways, like people of color not having the same access as white residents to information about properties for sale, or other financial resources in the community, to direct confrontations. I was passing something out about the uh, Pullman Porter, but it was about not letting them take over the, um, what was that building? You know, on your block, right down there. Bernadette recounts an incident where she was passing out flyers opposing a contentious new development in the neighborhood, which upset a white neighbor. He, you know, he, but his wife stopped him. He just took his hand like he was going to hit me. I thought for sure he was going to hit me. And the sad thing about it is I wasn't going to back down. I mm. felt like I'm sick of this shit. I'm tired of being the better person. I'm tired of having to say, uh, go to the higher level. I'm ready. You know, I feel like, you know, Bring it on, you know, and and I know I shouldn't have felt like that. So do you feel that um, in this neighborhood that like the racial dynamics necessitate or is that primarily what drives it? I, I definitely, I would not feel comfortable in my home at night or any other time without a gun. Yes, okay. yes. Right. Well, I'll tell you what, and I, it, takes me back to Sociology 101. The greatest moving force in society is violence. Indeed, there is a long and expansive Black tradition of arms. This tradition, as described on the website of the National African American Gun Owners Association, and I quote, dictates the use of armed self-defense to address the circumstances in which the government will not protect you because of incompetence, moral cowardice, or outright malice toward African American people. I love this quote because it acknowledges the ways in which self-defense, for many Black people, is the ultimate assertion of humanity, of valuing one's life and those of the people you choose to protect. Carrying a weapon provides not only a sense of safety, but also a feeling of control over one's destiny in a world that often seeks to strip Black people's ability to fully control their lives. The use of armed self-defense is also important in the evolution of the Black struggle for civil and human rights in this country. Though we tend to think about the civil rights movement as largely nonviolent, 
Black militia groups played key early roles in protecting civil rights activists, as well as in the strategies that various arms and organizations in the movement sought to implement. Many of the elders in my life tell me stories of growing up in communities where people looked out for one another, where they shared resources. Now they lament the fact that they don't know or trust their neighbors and tend to keep to themselves. The concentration of poverty and a sparsity of educational and economic opportunity have also contributed to rising rates of violent crime in urban communities, which, in turn, has influenced African-American attitudes on gun ownership and control. In many ways, a paradox is created where a large number of Black people favor controlling the number of guns coming into their communities, but on the other hand, feel the necessity of having a gun for their own protection. According to the Pew Research Center, about 82% of African Americans see guns as a problem in their communities. The Black tradition of armed self-defense is still alive and well, but our perceptions of the enemy have expanded to include those within our own neighborhoods, in addition to racists and white supremacists attacking from without. And without those earlier community structures in place, the possibility of collective action or accountability is diminished. We function in silos, hunkered down in our homes like islands. The practice of armed self-defense and armed resistance may also make it more difficult to envision a bigger community agenda or strategy, or even engage in self-reflection. As we approached the most recent presidential election, I was really curious about how Black folks were organizing themselves to get out the vote. I started following the work of Latasha Brown, who's the founder of Black Voters Matter, a grassroots organization dedicated to increasing political power in Black communities that we also got to push our, we got to get outside our minds and really think, like I always tell people, I'm a Black futurist. Like I'm doing what I need to do now, but I'm a Black futurist. I'm thinking about what are the systems that I need instead of keep trying to respond. No, but that's so good, Latasha, because that's the point. It's like, we owe it to them and we owe it to the future that you're talking about with the Black futurists to imagine something better. In a conversation between Brown and commentator Angela Rye, she said, racism has us responding so much that we are not taking the time to envision, to imagine. We are here because some slave envisioned that you and I were going to be free. This desire to get beyond the reactionary mode of constantly responding to racist threats really resonated with me. I was yearning for a way for Black folks to take a moment to turn inwards, to heal ourselves. Akinyele Emoja, a professor at Georgia State University and author of the book We Will Shoot Back, Armed Resistance in the Mississippi Freedom Movement, echoed this sentiment in a conversation we had, where he said, the most pressing need is for our people to develop a culture again of protecting ourselves which includes strengthening our families, businesses, institutions, and organizations. We need to change how we see each other and how we're going to protect one another. 
Umoja then shared a comment his wife had made about the death of Trayvon Martin and how, moments before he died, Trayvon had been on the phone with a friend and shared with her that he was being followed by the man later revealed to be George Zimmerman, his killer. Imagine, Umoja's wife said, if the friend could have called Trayvon's dad or gotten the community involved somehow, maybe the story would have turned out differently. This story moves me to tears. What if a group of family and neighbors had emerged and surrounded Trayvon and all of our children who find themselves in harm's way in a circle of love and protection at that crucial moment? What if we as Black people could walk in our neighborhoods or anywhere feeling protected not by a gun on our person, but by the knowledge that we are seen as a person, valued and cherished by a community that has our back. What if the stories that we tell and the images that we see reflect the rich diversity of African-American experiences and the complexity of who we are as human beings? What if we consciously uplift and encourage the expression of our curiosity and creativity and open up spaces in which to imagine and explore possibilities beyond our realities. As a member of Gen X, born just after the heyday of the civil rights and Black power era, I frequently traffic in what-ifs. I am always nostalgic for these periods that I did not get to experience. Though I understand that these movements were not without their problems, I find myself fantasizing about what it must have been like to exist in the midst of this force of Black collective energy and organizing. I am wistful when I think about the creation of Black towns and communities founded during the late 19th and early 20th centuries like the Greenwood District in Tulsa, Oklahoma, so successful it was known as Black Wall Street. I'm not as interested in the race riot that destroyed the town in 1921, but the beginning. What did it take for those Black people to come together to build a sustainable and thriving community? What lessons can we learn from them now? My neighbor Bernadette weighs in. And because we have the compassion and we have the commitment. And I think that a whole lot of black women need to get their butts in the classroom, you included, and, you know, decide to teach our children, number one, respect for each other Mm -hmm. and respect for ourselves. And getting our history correct is a lot of that. You know, we need to network, but most importantly, we need to be advocates for each other. Mm. And, uh, you know, we're going to have to do that. I mean, we really need to. Because I know I've been lazy and trifling, but I'm getting old and I am just tired. And I don't know, we need a burst of energy. And... Because we, we, we have to do something for ourselves. Because these folks out here, they're dangerous to our existence. I agree. 
Though I'm still uncertain about where guns fit into my vision of a safe and vibrant Black community, there are these moments when I feel like I catch a glimpse of liberation, of the possibility of a new way of being, one that I believe is actually connected to who we already are beneath the surface of all the chaos and the struggle. These moments of sweetness, like soul music blasting from a nearby porch as I jog around my local park with other Black runners, Al Green urging, let's stay together, or moments when the shriek of my niece and nephew's laughter allows me to experience what it would be like to live in a world motivated by and nurturing of Black children's joy, or when I'm sitting on the porches of older Black women like Bernadette, drinking in their stories and wisdom. I want the largeness and the smallness of this world and all of its nuances and complexities. Perhaps if we created this existence where, as Angela Rye said in that same conversation with Latasha Brown, oppression is not on the spectrum, choosing to preserve our own lives would take on new meanings, new manifestations, and guns would become a minor detail in a much bigger story. Natasha Tarpley is a spring 2022 Shearing Fellow at the Black Mountain Institute and the author of the best-selling picture book, I Love My Hair, as well as other acclaimed titles for children and adults. Where do we find safety? Where do we find home? Here in Las Vegas, several of my friends have journeyed not only out of the state, but out of the states to find home. Mm. And for many of those who have journeyed outward, the destination on the continent of Africa and the country of Ghana. It's like a homecoming. It is very much a homecoming, a return. As a matter of fact, Last year, Ghana announced that this was the time of homecoming and has been stretching out its arms to Black Americans to return. So there's a lot to be gained by going home. There's a lot to gain by finding that place of origin. It also makes me wonder, what do you lose? Yeah, well, for me... To me, relocation is just a part of the natural flow of life. My parents migrated here to the U.S. from El Salvador. But even within Austin, in our hometown, we moved so many times, at least 10 times. I went to five different elementary schools, and I continued to move a great deal, even as an adult. Home has never really felt like this static feeling for me. So for home, you don't automatically think of a material kind of foundation or material accoutrement to kind of ground yourself and find security within? Yeah, I, I, I guess it doesn't really feel that way for me. I think there are a lot of societal expectations around permanence, about 
putting down roots and staying in this one place and building atop of that, whether it's land, whether it's a first story home, expand it, whatever it might be at a second level. Whereas I've been very nomadic in part because I have to be, but also because I genuinely like exploring and learning. Curiosity really drives my direction and where I end up going. And I found that oftentimes when I leave not just a physical place, but even say a job, usually it's because I've stopped learning and it's like, okay, it's time for me to go somewhere else. Hmm. So what you're saying is that we should reevaluate what that idea of home means and perhaps even reevaluate the dream itself. I think it's, it's fair asking. It's fair asking or checking in with yourself to see what feels good to you. My experience have shaped me you know, mm-hmm. well, I, I think that's the kind of critical thinking that life in these times and in all times demands of us because it's clear that the American dream was born of a kind of propaganda that tells us we should buy the home and then goes on to tell us that we should buy the items that would go into the home. But for me, it's interesting that that is one part of that manifest destiny that is wrapped up in the American dream, Mm. that kind of roaming, seeking and striking out for new lands. But as we talk about and think about that American dream and that striking out for new prospects, we can also look at where this segment is grappling with that notion of how much of the security and stability of the American dream is truly manifest, or if it's a bill of goods that we've been sold. And it seems as though you're asking yourself constantly, do I want to buy? What do I want? Mm. And Sunny Brown, the writer of our next segment, is asking those same questions. What do I want? And what is this bill of goods that I've been sold? Yeah. And I think she does it well. Sunny immigrated to the U.S. to pursue her dream of becoming a professional writer. And now she's looking around, and I don't think she's alone here, and wondering if this is still the place where she wants to make her life. Well, for reasons that have become much more plain in recent years, Black folks born in this country think about going home There's a lot of that imagery and language in the spirituals, a lot of that imagery and language in folklore, the flight back to a land that will embrace and secure a peace and a freedom for us. So in this time when division and separation feels especially heightened in this country, I think a lot of us are asking the question that Sunny's asking. Where do I feel most at home? In whose company do I feel most at home? In whose company am I most safe and secure? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And Sunny definitely speaks to some of those questions in her piece. After a summer of intense racial uprising and decades after leaving, Sunny Brown contemplates returning to Jamaica. Here's Sunny. I left Jamaica in 1998. Jamaica is a small place with its culture and heritage tied to another small place far, far away. 
I was done with college, but there was little for me to do beyond working a job wearing a perfect plastic smile for North American tourists. The thought of my head bobbing in agreement while tourists asked out loud why my country wasn't as developed or as prosperous as their own made me shudder. My fake smile would have curled to a sneer. I imagined the tourists inventing silence as I threw their questions back at them. How exactly do you think your country got rich? Jamaica had replaced the plantation system with all-inclusive beachfront hotels, monuments to economic exploitation. I thought of myself as possibly a writer, which was an impractical aspiration given that I couldn't find a constant community of writers to learn from. Writing is a solitary task, but gathering ideas and inspiration is not. I knew where to go in Kingston, the capital city, if I wanted to be a visual artist or musician. But writing was something people left the island to do in cafes, smoking closed cigarettes, the scent of last night's lover, a hot memory on the skin. I was ignorant of any Jamaican writers doing the kind of antagonistic or experimental work that confronts the power structure. Not until their work gained international acclaim did I see them mentioned in local newspapers. As great as Marlon James is, his novels weren't on my radar until after he won the 2015 Man Booker Prize. My university's academic track was more practical than aspirational. Money on the island comes from tourism and mining pristine lands, not from writing sonnets. Education and job opportunities are the chief reasons why young people leave Jamaica for America. They immigrate for the ordinariness of suburban life. Our vision of the American dream is that of a steady job or two with the ability to remit money for the ones who couldn't leave. We scrimp to send cylinder-shaped plastic barrels filled with Irish spring soap, Wesson oil, Starkist tuna, Skippy peanut butter, and secondhand clothes never meant for the tropics. This was how I knew America, gorging on processed foods and watching The Cosby Show, The Andy Griffith Show, and sitcoms named after men. I believe these images to be the everyday life of all Americans, people so rich that they wore designer outfits to mow lawns. The goal of Jamaicans who go abroad is to eventually return one day after giving their youthful best in cold climates. The exchange rate of the American greenback to the Jamaican dollar buys them a life of stifling comfort. Back in the tropical heat, they build concrete mega mansions four stories high with Roman columns throughout. The wraparound balconies open out to the blue Caribbean Sea. The water is never calm inducing. It's a constant reminder that our enslaved and indentured ancestors came by boat. The Jamaica I know is not the one in tourist brochures. People aren't as easygoing. The smile they commodify in tourism ads is a veneer hiding incredible boredom and stunted dreams. It's as if gravity was stronger here and pulled ideas to the salty seabed, never allowing them to fly and take root, perhaps blossom into something. In my youth, I felt my country too small, too parochial, and too rigid in what it decided was appropriate behavior. My most fervent desire growing up was to be a nobody, something hard to do in a country twice the size of Delaware, 146 miles long, 51 miles wide, an island where it is not uncommon to meet a stranger 
only to realize you share a close relative. You can't go unnoticed in Jamaica. You can't be a wallflower. You can't sit on a veranda painting before a neighbor comes over to talk about why you paint and why you should paint something else. You certainly don't want to be the dark-skinned girl who delights in wearing slut red lipstick. You'll get noticed for that. And those notices are never kind. I knew I needed to leave. The U.S. Embassy was a short walk from my house in Kingston. When I was a child, I would pass by the long line of visa seekers broiling in the hot sun and shake my head. My thought was I would never suffer this indignity. Yet there I was in 1998. It was worth it for a chance to leave and make my own way in the world. My sister, like a majority of college graduates, left Jamaica and had filed a petition for my immigrant visa, what Americans know as a green card. It took seven years for the immigration services to get to my file. It was like waiting for a train that never arrives. I patiently carried on with life in Jamaica, knowing at any moment I'd have to stop, shift, transition to something else, somewhere else. My relationships were shallow. I didn't accumulate anything. I didn't dream too high. I didn't dream at all. I just waited. When my time finally came, I swore in front of State Department employees attesting to never being a communist, a drug user, or having intentions to topple the U.S. government. My medical exam, warranted by U.S. laws, proved my biological sex matched how I presented and that I was healthy and disease-free. My family guaranteed my financial independence, ensuring that I wouldn't ever apply for welfare. I established that I was worthy to live in America by proving my value to the wheels of production. This was on a Tuesday in July. By Thursday, I shifted my vocal pitch to affect a southern drawl as it was easier than the plummy high register of the Brooklyn rappers I listened to. As the plane prepared for takeoff, I looked out the window to see my city. I swelled with a mix of pride and regret. My eyes followed the green blue of the mountain range the highest in the region, standing rigid over the few high-rises in the city center, then down to the galvanizing roofs on the shore before meeting the blue of the sea. The woman in the seat next to me, someone I did not know, somehow knew I needed courage. She held my hand. The drone of the engines and the creak of the wing flaps pushed the plane into the air, and I cried, feeling my ancestors asking me to come back. There is a strangeness in leaving a city you grew up in to forge an identity somewhere else. It's the succession of exposures to different kinds of environments that ultimately shape one's personality. It would take me years to understand that there is an inability to amputate my cultural background from whomever I was claiming to be in whatever place I was calling home. My green Volvo is in quite a state as I drive south on Highway 15. A young deer ran into the passenger side of my car, tearing off the mirror. I am fine, but calculate mentally the cost to fix an already beat up car. It's a balmy August in 2013, 
my quest for a fresh start meant finding a job in a city I could afford so I could care for my son and myself. Las Vegas isn't New York City, the place I'm driving from, where I was someone's sister, nor is it Los Angeles, the place before New York, where I was someone's soon-to-be ex-wife. I needed a neutral place. Las Vegas has an appeal beyond cheap one-room apartments and neighbors who keep to themselves. This is a city filled with an awareness of the self-exiled. The city isn't known for subtlety. Billboards advertise personal injury lawyers, vaudeville-like showstoppers, and beautiful women hinting at a good time. So many events compete for attention, yet somehow Las Vegas relaxes my restless curiosity. The wide open spaces around it attract me irresistibly. Perhaps it is the desert sunset as I approach the city from the north. The highway lies still and long like a red racer snake. The pink hues and purple haze stretch across a pale blue summer sky, collaborating with the sun as it inches its fiery boiler beyond Mount Potosi. I am a nobody here, and as such, I can become anybody. Finding a home in a city like Las Vegas contests outdated notions of self. I had to question the person who I thought I was. Every city I lived in required a different version of myself. It's actually impossible to change oneself without also changing your environment, at least for me. What would the desert bring out in the still evolving version of me? Presumptively, I took myself for someone who could be home anywhere in America, since this wasn't truly my home. But Las Vegas was the only place to come close. Many of my happy memories are tied to Las Vegas. Memories that would connect anyone to a place forever. I fell in love with a man from Iowa under the curated burst and sizzle of a 4th of July fireworks show. That first year, we viewed the show from a casino. The next year, we saw it from the rooftop terrace of the house we had bought together. Las Vegas is where I became a writer. This is what I tell my children. Home is wherever they are. I've never been able to explain why something still feels missing. I made multiple efforts to try and recreate what I had in Jamaica here. I planted my daughter's navel string in the dusty dirt to create a connection to the land itself. I relived memories of watching dune races with my brothers by attending the Mint 400. Nothing worked. When the children fall into a nightly slumber and you can hear their light snores mixed with a refrigerator buzz and the roof groaning, I feel a pull. Resistant is a fruitless battle. My spine and clavicle tingle. Shimmering wings sprout from my back. My wings are more than twice the span of my arms. They are the iridescent green wings of a hummingbird. With these wings, I can go forward, backward, hover over the bed, and even fly upside down. I soar and swoop over the IKEA furniture building near my house and away from the city. Like a rogue boomerang, I circle the Luxor, shooting its light beam into outer space. My winged body rides through linear time on the trade winds to Jamaica, like when a snail leaves itself and goes into another shell, and then another. My wings transport me to my mother's tropical garden. 
She is shell and peas into a calabash gourd. The last of the legumes fall without a sound. She shakes the calabash so the legumes settle into the rounded bottom. After deciding she has enough for the evening meal, my mother beckons me to her side. She tells me she's glad that I didn't have salt on me. When I ask why, she says salt makes you too heavy to fly. That all black people can fly, but salt sucks them to the ground where they become mealworms. She beckons me to fly with her as she too has sprouted wings. Her wingspan is larger than mine, yet nothing on the ground is disturbed. She snatches me up and then swoops to the family gravesite. She unstops a bottle of white overproof rum. You can smell the grass and hear the insects as she pours some on the head of each tombstone. I trace my finger over their names. Eugenie Maxim, Lachlan, Gloria. My family has lived on this land for nearly 200 years. After my mother dies, there will be no one to tend to the land or remember the people in the graves. It's time, I tell myself. It's time to go home. In a little corner of my life, going home has always loomed larger than my resistance. It started as a prick of memory, which soon rolled into a deep longing, then like a flood of tiny dewdrops telling the parched earth that the monsoon is coming, I could no longer ignore the realization that America was the place I built a life, but Jamaica was my home. Even though I was good at tapping down the feelings of fear, disgust, and complicity, after all, I was living in a wealthy country that made others poor. The murder of so many black folks by the police, migrant children in cages, and the senseless COVID-19 deaths left me reeling. I see Tamir Rice's face when my son tells me he wants to play in the park. I try not to channel my concerns that white people can't police their imagination and their comfort might trump my black son's right to life and liberty. I knew America had problems when I came here, but I believe the art of justice was getting shorter. This didn't feel like the same country that made me prove I had what it took to be a good American. The democratic experiment seemed to be collapsing around me. While there has been some progress, the narrative of the Black experience in America is static. It makes me question if America truly is a place to raise my very Black children. My son called me a coward when I said I had not watched the widely circulated video of George Floyd being murdered. He doesn't understand that I cannot watch another Black man victimized, murdered, dragged, terrorized, shot, and left for dead. All I could say was black folks had been marching for some time now. Something different needed to happen. Maybe we need to leave. I am not original. People have always sought liberation through migration. There's a sizable cohort of black American emigres like this. Feeling cornered and powerless in the face of persistent racism, police brutality, and economic struggles in the USA, they choose to pursue their American-born dreams abroad. Regardless of what the U.S. Constitution states about domestic tranquility, Black Americans know society cannot build equality on violence and savagery. Before abolitionists and racists dreamed of the idea of sending Black people back to Africa, free Black people were leaving on their own. 
from the first group of enslaved Africans in 1619 who saw daybreak on the eastern shores, there has been a longing to find a place to just be. In Ibo Landon, a coastal island port in Georgia, there's a legend shared among the Gullah Geechee people. It happened when the slave trade seemed never-ending, freedom centuries away. A group of Africans, limbs and necks manacled in chains, disembarked the slave ship. One look at the degrading act of humans selling other humans caused them to turn around and walk across the Atlantic towards Africa. The repatriation movement started long before slavery ended and well before Jamaican activist Marcus Garvey set up the Black Star Liner, which would swindle thousands of dollars from desperate Black folks hoping to invest in themselves and people who looked like them. James Baldwin left New York for Paris in 1948. He wanted what seemed impossible then, the ability to attain self-fulfillment as an ambitious gay Black intellectual in the United States. His flight had not been to Paris, but simply away from America. American-born French entertainer Josephine Baker said she felt suffocated in America. She and many other artists and intellectuals made their way to Europe and Africa not because they hated America, but because they couldn't stand the racial constraints. America's dysfunctional racial dynamics disappear with an embossed stamp in a passport. When African Americans are abroad, they are just Americans. There's strife everywhere. There will never be a perfect place for Blacks to live. Abolitionist Frederick Douglass opposed the idea of Black people leaving America because the sacrifices in the fight for equality were too great to give up on. But I don't think Douglas was talking about me, someone who chose to come here. The roar of assimilating to America was getting fainter, the familiarity of home stronger, the knowledge that my individual achievement generally came at the expense of someone else gnawed at me. It's only a little after nine in the morning, but the Jamaican summer humidity has defeated our moisture-wicking shirts. My husband and I peered down the fresh water well, amazed that it's still operational after decades of dormancy. We mop our brows and sip cool water from bottles with a Made in America stamp at the base while the contractor surveys the five acres of land around me. He looks at the cattle grazing and voiding their bowels and comments that the land will soon be perfect for planting. He nods in agreement with my sister that this is a good spot to build our house. My sister looks at the remaining foundation of the house our great-grandparents built. She points to where the veranda would have been and says, this is where our mother would have sit to shell peas. After that June walk on the property with the contractor, my sister and I sway in side-by-side hammocks under the almond tree in her backyard. The only sounds are the rustle of the leaves. The breeze is light, blowing and cooling the sweat laying on our skin like rain. I survey the land that has felt the imprint of our relatives' lives for generations. My sister, who lived in New York for 30 years, is more New Yorker than Jamaican. I tell her that I don't know if I can really leave Las Vegas. It holds so much for me, I say. She sighs and gives me a knowing look. This far inland, we can't see the blue waters of the Caribbean Sea though we can taste the salt in the air. 
Her eyes glance at the two-story house in front of us. Its white pillars meant more for decoration than load support. It's a house purchased from a twice-removed cousin who also left for America. A hummingbird's green wings flit back and forth above her head in an unusual display of fearlessness. You will, she says. It is early summer 2021. The pandemic is raging everywhere, upending the way things used to be. Jobs that could only happen within daylight hours in an office cubicle can now be done anywhere. I can write from anywhere with an internet connection. That's not all that has changed. In the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement that caught like wildfire across the globe, many countries have an incentive to confront their role in the violent histories of racism and inequality. Although individuals have called out for compensation decades ago, the Jamaican government is officially seeking more than $10 billion in reparations from Britain. That number is an estimate of how much white enslavers were paid for their loss of enslaved people when slavery was abolished. Around 800,000 enslaved black people in the British territories of the Caribbean were freed in 1834. Britain had to take out a loan so big to cover the compensation that they only finished paying off the interest in 2015. In the English city of Bristol, the main port for sugar and rum that came from Jamaican plantations, protesters toppled a statue of British politician Edward Colston following the death of George Floyd. Colston was personally responsible for enslaving tens of thousands of people, perhaps even the people that lay in our family's gravesite. Today in Jamaica, there's now a new crop of brash writers, fueled by the children of the people who left Jamaica and people like me who want something other than the legacy of racism and brutality to leave their children. We are shedding our colonial past, ready to make something new, something that is just us. The internet has made the world smaller and Jamaica's reach that much broader. Young writers no longer have to leave the country to find community. The Calabash Literary Festival brings writers and intellects of the wider world to a beach only five miles from my family's land. The people are ready for literary art that inspires and provokes ideas that bring about change. I am not attempting to make the case that reading or writing literature makes one more emotionally refined, only that I want to build something I never had growing up. America doesn't need me. Jamaica does. Sunny Brown is a Jamaican writer based in Las Vegas and an MFA candidate at UNLV. She's currently writing essays about the Black immigrant experience, while her polydactyl cat, Priscilla Pursley, sleeps on her lap. Erica! We brought a second season home. Yes, we did. Home is a place that we share in one another, my sister. Black Mountain Radio is broadcast from Southern Paiute land. Black Mountain Radio is an audio project of the Beverly Rogers Carol C. Harder Black Mountain Institute. Sara Ortiz is the architect and host extraordinaire. And my lovely co-host all season long is my dear friend, esteemed colleague, and community leader, Erica Vitalazar. 
Our senior producer is the wizard, Nicole Kelly. Vera Blossom and Leila Mohammed are our fantastic producers. Additional production and sound design by Ariel Mejia. This episode was edited by Nicole Kelly, Zonil Maharaj, and Sara Ortiz. Our production assistants for this season are Sylvia Fox and Sunny Brown. Our theme song is by Jeremy Klawicki. Our art by Nij Bourges. Graphic design by Lily Allen. Copy editing by Summer Tomad. And a special shout out to our engineer, our brother in the box, Kevin Crawl. Special thanks to our contributors in this episode, Sunny Brown and Natasha Tarpley. Thanks to the rest of the team at the Black Mountain Institute, Kellen Braddock, Daniel Gambiner, Haley Patel, and Haya Wang. Black Mountain Radio is supported by the Rogers Foundation and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Our deep gratitude goes to Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities for supporting Black Mountain Radio. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for the journey, Sada. Thank you, my co-pilot, Erica Vitalazar. Thank you, Erica. All right, that's a wrap. We should sing the Golden Girls theme. Thank you for being... Oh, no, I don't think they'll let us air it. I think there's maybe some copyright thing. Okay, darn. Because it even goes travel around the world and back again. It fits with the whole I think there's an argument there where we can use it if it's your voice. Take it away. You don't want that.